Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number 70. Am I supposed to say that anymore? No. I'm not. We can't. It, it's whatever episode it is. Look at look in your thing. And figure it out. Yeah. But but it probably is seventy one. <laughs> Somewhere around there. Uh, how are you guys? Well, I'm not seventy one, so I'm doing pretty good. Although the temperature yesterday was almost seventy one. That was so that was nice. so nice. I want spring and summer so bad. You do. Winter is is it kind of your arch enemy or your nemesis? Would you say? Ah, uh, that's too strong. That's okay. too strong a language. But I I frenemy. Spring is my favorite. Spring okay. is my, well, I like the fall too. October and April are the two best weather months. <laughs> Tim, what do you think? What's your favorite weather month? I like the fall, so September, October. Nice. But I like all the seasons. I like try to enjoy each of them. In the winter months, what's nice is that I can stay inside because I don't have to go outside and take care of the lawn or whatever yes. else. So Sure. I get more inside book time, game time with my kids, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, uh, one quick announcement before we get to that other thing we do. We are doing a, it's not really a contest, but it's a, it is like you enter and you could win something. I guess it's a, it's a contest. It's a tank, kind of a contest. It's a thinkling. It's a low key contest. A low key. Not, not really hard. Very low effort. So if you go over to Apple and leave us a five star review, that's where you click the stars, but then you can also write a review and to enter the contest, you need to click five stars and write a review and you can say whatever you want in that review but if you leave a five-star written review in the month of february we will uh, draw from those names they're time stamped we'll draw from them and give away some things bookstore things thinklings things and so you want to do that and if you've already done that here's what you can do uh you can actually go to somebody else's phone and leave a review from their phone this is a good thing so just to go find a friend, find a buddy, like, hey, can I borrow your phone? And then just sneak away and then leave a review. And subscribe to our podcast while you're in there. Yeah. This is that's, great. Turn on notifications. It's like insider trading, only it's not. <laughs> it's like that show where you, you had like a, a, a helps a phone a friend. It's just, this is a phone of a friend. That's what you're looking for. Phone of for, a friend. A phone of a friend. <laughs> yeah. So we really want to get to 100 reviews. We're 85. We just checked it. So 15 of you find friends to go leave us a review or 15 of you who haven't done it yet, you could go do it. And I understand it's an Apple review. So if you're on an Android, sorry, but maybe that's where you just go borrow somebody's uh, iPhone and and go crazy. So go leave us a review. You could also just try to get other Android users to get iPhones. That would be another thing you could do. Although generally they're very resistant, very resistant. Yeah, I don't want to like, get it. I, th- I think Apple's better, but I've never tried the other thing. So I don't know how to... Books and business. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we have some Thinklings business to tend to, Tim. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. Uh, I'm going to go first today. I have a book here by Greg Gregory Lanier and William Ross. Gregory Lanier and William Ross. It's titled The Septuagint, What It Is and Why It Matters. And one of the classes I am taking right now 
I have to write a paper on a theological controversy. And uh, I didn't really know where to start. Uh, but what was interesting to me at the time, which is like maybe like a month and a half ago, was some Sept Septuagint stuff. And I started doing some reading, started buying some books to kind of get into that frame of mind and found out that there are some really famous theologians who think that the Septuagint is inspired. And actually, so Andy wasn't a part of this conversation. Andy, let's play a game. Oh boy. We're gonna, the game is, what famous theologian said this? Ooh. Okay, what famous theologian said this? Joel Osteen, oh wait, you better tell me first. He's a little older than Osteen. Okay. So not, not a modern um, person. So, quote, where the difference between the Hebrew text and the Septuagint is not a mere copyist error, and where the sense is agreeable to truth and illustrative of truth, we must believe that the divine spirit prompted them, that is the translators, to give a varying version, not in their function of translators, but in the liberty of prophesying. Is this someone who's arguing for the trans Septuagint? This is someone arg arguing that, where, based on what it said, where the Septuagint differs from Hebrew, mm. the reason it differs is because it's prophecy. So it's, it's inspired. Okay, so, so I, would, I would say it is not Peter Ruckman. Uh, we're no. talking like really old. We're no, talking I, like it was a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, this is Charlie this is, have a long inside is, joke with yeah, Ruckman. 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 I think I would need some options to pick from. So this guy also would really love the apocrypha. This guy also would have He's, a town named after him in Florida. He does. Saint. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. Florida. Well, I, I don't know. It's Peter's? Augustine. Augustine. Oh, it's. It's I Augustine. I didn't know that was a St. Augustine, Florida. I thought it was St. Petersburg, Florida. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. Petersburg. <laughs> That's uh, not even a, like Peter didn't say that. He <laughs> but anyway, back on track. So uh, there's, there's some people very similar to some King James only people that would say that the translation is actually a re-inspiration or a, mm. a dual inspiration. Right. The Alex X was inspired. Yeah. That's it, well, what he's saying. Well, and. When it yeah. only, but it's interesting. It's when it differs. So, like, if it matches the Hebrew, well, yeah, of course, the Hebrew is the scripture. That's the authority. But where it differs from the Hebrew, like, wow. oh, it's a reinspiration. Mm -hmm. And and um, this book, the Septuagint, what it is and why it matters. I actually didn't get that Augustine quote from this book. It's from another article, like in the study. But that kind of highlights the theology of what I'm studying. Is like, well, what authority does this Greek? translation of the Old Testament have. And there's it's fascinating history starting in like 4 BC in Alexandria, Egypt, where the, the mm. Septuagint or the Greek Pentateuch yep. comes from, and then how that becomes, not maybe in full scope, but in, in a, at least in a little scope, the Bible, or at least a translation that's heavily used by the New Testament writers. And so uh, thinking through its authority is a, it's just a great theological study of what is biblical authority, like what's the difference between a translation and the inspired text, and how do you think that through? And I found this book to be concise in explaining the Septuagint and very helpful in thinking through the categories. And so if you're at a lay level or a theological student and you want to get into this, this is a great introduction book. I would, I would probably say it's like a Five. Ooh. I think for for the for the for the serious Bible student wanting to get like one layer beyond the the cover, 
of Bible study and you want to think through the Septuagint, this would this would be a great book to start with. And so kudos to my bookstore manager friend Tim, who turned me on to it and left it on the counter and I walked in and bought it. And uh and it's it's really helpful. Try doing that with an ebook. Leave it on the counter yeah, for you me. You can't leave an ebook on the counter. What do you, where is it? I've got all these tabs open. I don't even know where it's at. <laughs> Man, it's unbelievable. So yeah, uh, The Septuagint, What It Is and Why It Matters by Lanier and Ross. I uh, give it a five. Hey, two points on pronouncing Augustine, Augustine, and not Augustine. Well done, sir. Yeah, well done. I'm a snob. I I'm prefer sorry. Augustine. Yeah, that's because you're a plebeian. I just There's another podcast I've listened to. It's Five Minutes in Church History. Yeah, the, oh, that's good. And the yep. guy, when he talked about Augustine, he's like, it's not Augustine. St. Augustine is a city in Florida. Mm-hmm. Augustine is the church yeah. father. So, And like Caesar Augustus, not Caesar Augustus. Yeah. yeah so way, but, to, go. I mean, way in, to go, man. You know, in our own vernacular, we say things and we, on pronunciation, maybe we should relax a bit. But I do think it is Tolkien. And you do. And uh, a friend of the program, Kevin Bowder, told us that. Yep, so that's right. Amen. But you don't want to put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. It does change the whole meaning. All right, so I'm going to review The Great Divorce This Week by C.S. Lewis. I have never read this book, and to my shame. I've tried to start it a couple of times, but I've never found time to get through it. And friend of, or listener of the podcast, Steve Cox, thanks, Steve, for the recommendation of Scribd. I downloaded Scribd, and so I listened to this as an audiobook. So I'll have to ask Charlie if he would count this in my reading of the year. But I do feel like I got a lot out of it as I was doing other things. I was focusing on it. But I also don't listen right before I go to bed or I just fall asleep. I really liked this. It was interesting, so I don't know how much to give away of the book. But as it sounds like, these people kind of go to heaven that's not heaven. It is really like a dream. So you know in your dream when like you're at the store at Walmart buying something, but you're in Walmart and it's not Walmart at all. But you, you, you are in Walmart in your dream. It's like that. What I liked about it is as he meets these people in heaven, each one of them has some sort of an issue they're dealing with, and he really fleshes out some underlying motivations that are hidden. So I don't know that I'm going to give too much away here, but if you don't want to know anything about the book, skip till the end. But the lady who lost her son, and she's really mad that God would take her son, and the person in heaven is trying to help her understand that You've, you've basically, like there's some underlying motivations that expose she really didn't love her son as much as she thought. And like the lady with her husband who was like trying to help her husband, she's really manipulative. It was really intriguing from that angle. But I actually think what he's doing is he's trying to low-key answer the question of the problem of the unevangelized. Could be wrong on this, but in apologetics, there's a question, well, what about people who've never heard of Christ? And is God going to send them to hell? Isn't that unjust? And I think my first answer would be Romans chapter 1 that says all people know there's a God and all reject him. Uh, But that still is kind of a difficult problem. But Lewis is essentially showing that these people who don't end up going to heaven actually don't want to. And he shows that very volitionally they don't. He even has this uh, statement where his guide is telling him some stuff. And he says this, he says, I know it has a grand sound to say that you would accept no salvation which leaves even one creature in the dark outside. But watch that sophistry, or you'll make a dog in a manger and a tyrant of the universe. And it's this big dis- disagreement they have. But his point is that the people who don't go to heaven actually didn't want to. And it is intriguing to think about that. I'm not going to come down hard on this, but I do think that if, if sin and rebellion are the real issue, then at some level, and actually I think it's at the center level, I'm culpable for not 
for my eternal destiny. And so I think Lewis is just taking that orthodox idea seriously and kind of playing around with it. Really imaginative, really interesting. A little bit trippy, maybe, I think some of us would say. So I really liked it. I would give it a seven on the goodness scale, and I would recommend it. I liked listening to it better than trying to read it. I want to go back and read it, though. Just a quick comment. So you can, if whether or not it counts if it's reading, is whether you count it if it's reading. I do. If I was counting it, I would maybe consider it a little differently. I would also, like, yeah, re- that's a great book. It's it's a struggle imaginatively to to think through what he's saying, but uh, I think it's it's a it's a great imaginative work. I think it's a reread. I think it's a oh, strong sure. potential candidate. I think Have after we I read it, talked about this on the podcast before. I think after I get three or four reads into that, well, yeah, because you're in. A, we talked about that hideous strength way back in the day. Third time, it's best and all that. No, have we talked about Great Divorce? Have none of us brought this up before? I think oh, you yeah. brought it up for books and business. I brought it up for books and business. You're I think like we've the had a third one. <laughs> yeah, I'm way I'm late to the party. We could actually probably do a whole episode on it. It's It'd be worth good. talking about. Yeah, I don't, I think there's way more potential. I, I got a negative view from one of you, probably you, me. And now that I've read it, I I, like I think it? it's actually one of his most intriguing books. Well, Tim poops fiction all the time, so that's just his nature. So the book I have oh. is <laughs> moving on. Yeah, go for it. Recovering Our Sanity by Michael Horton. The subheading is How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us. And as somebody who studied the fear of the Lord um, a fair amount in the Old Testament, I really liked this title. As I look at our world, I see a lot of people that are scared of a great many things. And I do believe that the answer to all of those fears is one fear and a fear of the Lord. He's sovereign. He's in control. So whatever happens is going to happen because he ordained for it to happen, whether it's good or ill from your perspective. So a true fear of the Lord, of the Lord is uh, uh, will conquer the fears that divide us. In the book, he develops uh, this argument. He starts with the first chapter is like a pandemic of fear. So of course, co- connecting it to the pandemic. By the way, this book just was just released. Uh, I don't remember. I think it's only like out like a week or two. Uh, So the first chapter is the pandemic of fear. The first part, which includes four chapters, is the fear to end all fears, where he seeks to define the fear of the Lord. And this was the most important part that I wanted to study through. Um, The jury's still out. I've skimmed through those four chapters. I'm not super um, impressed with it, shall we say. Uh, the fear of the Lord is really an Old Testament theological concept. It's, it's highly developed in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament alludes to it and refers to it. But um, he is basically interacting with the New Testament. He mentions the Old Testament some. Like he talks about Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But he really doesn't expand upon that. Um, I remember that concept and I've used this as an illustration. Yeah, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, what does that mean? How is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? And I and I also like in Proverbs chapter 2 is that you have to work really hard to understand the fear of the Lord. So this whole concept of the fear of the Lord is being even something that I can teach a student. I try to tell them, you know, I can't even really teach you what the fear of the Lord is. You have to figure it out for yourself and it's going to have to be figured out through this world and living in this world. Um, I've recently preached a message on Isaiah 51, and uh, in that text, I think I've, I've been able to most clearly explain what the fear of the Lord is. 
Uh, but Horton is completely, well, not completely, he's in Psalms and some Proverbs and Old Testament texts, but he's in Romans a lot and in the New Testament all over the place, 1 Thessalonians 5. And I'm just like, yeah, it's, it's really just not developed. His section on the beginning of wisdom uh, was inadequate, in my opinion. Uh, he has eyes toward heaven, which is true. That's what the fear of the Lord is, is that you're looking up to heaven. You need to have a bigger God. Uh, that's why James Sire, he makes a comment. What does it mean to be humble? How do we grow in humility? We grow in humility through the fear of the Lord. The greater God is, and the more you exalt God, then what does that do? It humbles you. So as you grow in the fear of the Lord, you grow in your, well, as you grow in your exaltation of God, you grow in your fear of the Lord, and then you grow in your humility to yourself. So his part two, the facing our fears with eyes raised to God, he then discusses some of the more um, concrete uh, components like suffering. He has a chapter on suffering. Um, he has a section on the Christian America, quote unquote, Christian America versus the body of Christ, uh, why we fear each other, religious liberty and cancel culture, LGBTQ plus fears, uh, racial fears. So he gets into a lot of these uh, social agendas and things. Uh, and so Russell Moore is doing the forward, which was a red flag to me. Uh, I'll just leave that there. But um, he has this quote in, in the book, in the beginning of the book, he states, my goal in this book is not to take sides in cultural and political debates. And I'm just like, I don't think you can't take sides. Okay. You have to take a side. The fear of the Lord is going to lead to specific positions that are contrary to both sides of the political debate at times, but more so to one side of the political debate. He states, instead, it is to raise our eyes to heaven so that our sanity can be restored, as Nebuchadnezzar experienced in Daniel 4. There's a lot of truth there. You look up, you see God, this is what's true. And then as you look out and about you, the things of this world become diminished and you start to look at them correctly through the lenses of scripture and the lenses of the Lord. And then you can, you can filter out the, the junk, but guess what that's going to do? You're going to take a side, especially when he's going to deal with issues like religious liberty, LGBTQ plus and race, uh, with a Russell Moore writing the foreword. I'm just like, Ugh. so I haven't gotten to that section of the book yet. So far I've not been impressed. Um, I think someday I need to write on the fear of the Lord, uh, maybe a book, uh, but it's such an important concept, and I, I wish people would uh, really study this out. And if you're, you're like, you know what, I want to study out this fear of the Lord, just open up a Bible program and search fear of the Lord and start thinking, what is this thing? So you haven't finished it, so you're not going to do any rating? I'm not going to rate it yet. Like, I came into this book thinking this is going to be really good. I like Michael Horton as an author. He's a historian. And he talks about, you know, connecting to children. He's like, what's my greatest fear? Well, it's my children and my children growing up in a culture that hates God. And I'm like, that resonates with me. Well, how do we go about raising children in this kind of a culture? It's like, totally, like I'm right with you. But I don't think yeah. he really gave me the answers. At least they weren't the ones that, that I was going to or thinking of when I go to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Isaiah. Okie dokie. Quick preview, we're going to talk about discipleship in this episode. It's, I think if we have our ducks in a row, it's episode number two. So what was God, what is God's will is number one. And then 
we're going to explore the next question in the content here. So enjoy that and we'll see you next week. And go leave us a review on someone else's phone in Apple Podcasts. Let's have a conversation or another conversation about discipleship. If you've listened previously, we had an episode, uh, discipleship questions or 12 questions every disciple should ask. And so this is part two of what will be a 12-part discussion. And the first question was, what is God's will? And there's a lot of ways to answer that question. But in our context of Christian discipleship, a transformation of our character, and that involves both, both the inside and the outside, internal and external obedience. But in our specific context, we want to focus in on addressing the internal. So the way we're going to answer that question of what is God's will is, God's will is to internally transform you. And I think this is true in multiple aspects of our salvation. The moment you got saved, you were regenerated, you became a new creature, internal transformation. Someday when we get to heaven, completely transformed. The presence of sin is completely gone. And so full glorified transformation. But what we're focusing on is here on earth every day, what's God's will? Every day, God wants to internally transform us. And so each of these questions is going to maybe progress that idea practically. And so if God's will, question one, answer to question one, if God's will is to internally transform us, how, this is question two, how does God accomplish that will? His will is to internally transform. How does he go about accomplishing our internal transformation? So let me pause there. Does that make sense? I think it made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. Okay. And again, just like question one, there's a lot of ways we could answer that question. And there's some ways that you know no one would disagree with. Okay, but what I want to build an image of in our mind is kind of like that bridge track, you know, where it's like the center getting across the big chasm and then they they get to salvation or eternal life. Picture that. They're in the available in the Facebook store. They are. Yeah. And so we're going to try and picture that too. And so what what I want to imagine if you're listening to this uh, on in podcast form, both sides of that chasm. So what are on either side? When we start talking about sanctification and transformation, what would maybe be on the one side, which is where we start, and then what would be on the end side? So I'm just going to throw that out to Tim and Andy and just see what they come up with. So if, if sanctification was like that bridge track, where are we starting and then where are we getting to? We're going to talk about the, the chasm in the middle in a moment. Where would we start? Where would we end? Well, I think the starting would have to be salvation. If you're not saved, you can't even begin the progress. So probably getting saved is the start. So, so yeah, let me clarify. We're already saved. <clears throat> so this oh, is this okay. is the process of sanctification mm-hmm. okay. as a bridge. Here we go. Okay. I got it. You know when your kid, Tim, throws a tantrum because they're selfish, that's the one side of the bridge. That's where you're starting. <laughs> that is going to come up. actually for adults too. It is. And that's actually what we're going to get to. That's actually not where I want to start though. The world, the old man. That's what I think of on the one side of the bridge. Okay. Um, so let me ask another question. And this will maybe help guide our conversation. We're missing it. We are. He's fishing. <laughs> Does teaching alone produce transformation? 
You're asking two teachers that question. Does teaching alone... Now, no. the caveat is you have to define teaching and define transformation. But so does teaching alone produce transformation? If by teaching you mean mentally informing or educating, then no, because I could be mentally informed or educated on any topic that may never actually change the way I live my life. So I could actually know tons of things about the Bible. Mm -hmm. I could know many facts about the Bible. I could know lots of theology, but I'm actually not more like Christ. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of professors at liberal Christian schools that don't believe a word, but they know maybe even more than me and Tim do. So that is that's well, me, the that's the starting point that we want to that we're kind of looking at is on one side of the bridge, and no one would disagree with the statement: the teaching of God's word is a necessary part of the transformation process. But just knowledge acquisition doesn't guarantee an internal transformation. So picture the little stick man on the one side of the big chasm. And there's the teaching. And I, I don't want to say that to negatively view teaching of the Bible. The whole picture is both a knowledge acquisition and a character transformation. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not saying teaching the Bible is a bad thing. But teaching alone, I don't think just the knowledge acquisition side of, of the word really transforms. There has to be something else that happens. And so, but there's this verse, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. So the teaching of God's word is on the one side, it's a necessary part of transformation. We've so, But that doesn't guarantee transformation. So we've actually started with, and it will be alliterated, and I'll give all credit where credit is due to my old pastor who taught me the three T's of sanctification. And uh, But we've already named actually two of them. We, we've named the starting point. Which What's is the name of your old old pastor? Pastor John Saucer. There you go. He's going to be here this week. It'll be a lot of fun to see him. I don't, I miss those guys. I miss, mm. I miss Oh, them. there we go. Squirrel. Hey, sh well, okay. That's so good. That's good. That's we've, honoring. We've, the starting point. Honor to him, honor yeah, to Yeah, there you go. Is teaching. See, I God totally God. misunderstood his chasm thing. <laughs> <laughs> so picture in your mind, if you're listening to this, there's a big, wide, like gap, chasm gorge mm. and you're trying to get across it okay mm -hmm. picture looking out over like the grand canyon and where you're standing that position in sanctification is representative of teaching of the word of god it is the necessary starting point transformation of your character which involves both the internal and external but we're focusing on the internal addressing that at the beginning that's the other side so that's two T's, right? There's teaching, it's where mm. we start, and me being literally transformed. Mm -hmm. like I'm becoming like Christ. That's on the other side. So starting with a knowledge of God's word, how do I get across to real life transformation? That's the middle T. And Andy already kind of talked about it. I mean, I think I know the answer because you told me, so I'm trying not to. I have an I. But I was what's, thinking what's, the spirit, like the illuminating work of the spirit. Is really oh, the actually, about. thank you for mentioning that. The the T on the other side of the canyon, so there's the word of God is, is that starting one. And actually the one who's doing the the transforming work, how we get across is the spirit of God. Second Corinthians 3.18. We're transformed by the spirit. 
But there's something that God actively does to accomplish us getting across that. Oh, he's after bridge. the trials thing, isn't he? No. And well, what does that word them. start with, Tim? A T. Is this like when you go to the gym? Is that what you're saying? Like, what do you do at the gym? You trial your you body. Train. You train. Oh. That's actually that's the the real word. Is there's <laughs> yeah. training. I hurt my body. <laughs> hey, well, training hurts. <laughs> well, that's sanctification. That's hurts. kind of the point of physical training is you're tearing down so that it can be built back up, and that's a good metaphor for what happens spiritually. That you start with the teaching, the knowledge of the Word of God, and then it's actually the training that God takes you through in life. I would say daily, he's doing this every day. And as you, with the teaching, go through the training, the Spirit of God transforms you. And so, the, you know, this is kind of a, a, a flyover. We'll get more into the nuts and bolts of this in the next couple of questions. But this is like a philosophical idea, like your, your big perspective looking at this. If God's will is to internally transform me, how is he going to do that? He is with the teaching of the Word of God, going to take you through very specific training. And as you, as the Word of God becomes applicable to you, in the midst of that training, the Spirit of God is going to change you. And so it's, and rightfully, it's not easy to describe that because it's a very, it's intangible. We don't physically see the inside of our soul and character being changed, but God is doing it through his word, through his spirit. And so the answer to the question, how does God accomplish the transformation, which is his will, the answer is training. And I'm not, I'm not trying to section out the teaching, but I want to focus in on like, what is God going to do every day? He's going to allow training for you. And I think there's examples of this both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'm here at the table looking at an Old Testament guy and a New Testament guy. So let's see if you can come up with the same passages that I have. Mm. So Tim, if you can think Old Testament, there's a passage where God is training the people of Israel. Does a passage come to your mind? He's fishing. Well, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. So I know. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy Ooh, 8. Quality. And what does Deuteronomy 8 say? And I think the context is important. It's an address to the second generation after the rebellious first generation has all died. And God says, I led you, speaking to the second generation, for 40 years in the wilderness to do what? To test you, to humble you, mm. to know what was in your heart. Remember, God's will is internal transformation. The heart is mentioned there in Deuteronomy 8. He says, I led you for 40 years in the wilderness to know what was in your heart. And you have to kind of wrap your mind around what he's saying. God is omniscient. God knew every day of the wilderness wandering what was going on in each of their hearts. This isn't God testing in a sense of, hmm, I wonder if they're going to obey me today. He already knew that. I think that what God is focusing on here is it's, it's for them. He's testing them so that their understanding Am I obeying or am I not obeying? The trial, the, the training of the wilderness was them going through difficulties for 40 years to see what was at work within them. And as a result, they would humble themselves and fear the Lord. And the second generation did better than the first generation. So 
one for one. That's the passage we were looking at for the Old Testament. Now to Andy. Don't let him down. This is tricky. There's a lot. I think there's a lot more in the New Testament. No, there's not. It's all over in the Old Testament. It is. All of the wisdom literature is, is about this. And so, but if there was one passage that it says that we should really enjoy training, what would you think of? My go-to passage is James chapter 1, but I half wondered if you'd want 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, but I think it's James. Those are good too. James chapter 1 because it tells you the method. I think 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5 brings this idea into personal ministry, like pastoral ministry. Mm -hmm. It's how this was lived out in the life of an apostle and multiple ministers of the gospel. So in a pastoral sense, what did it look like? But I think it applies to everyone. But James 1 Mm -hmm. is just to the normal guy, like, hey, count it all joy mm-hmm. when you fall into various trials, or you could, you know, in parentheses, when God takes you through training, mm-hmm. difficulties, and there's a reason why. The testing of your faith produces. There's a change that happens in you when you go through a difficulty and knowing what you know is true from the Word of God, in the moment of training, you trust what is true, you trust the Lord, and through that knowledge of the Word and the training, you are changed. Something happens when you humble yourself to what's true in the midst of difficulty and you trust the Lord. And that right there, both Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8, James 1, there's so many other passages. Peter, it's all Peter talks about yep. in First Peter. Mm. Various trials that you've had to go through with your, you know, whatever, in your home, in your job, you know, in, in the world, like you're, you're suffering. And what is God doing? He wants you to endure because that is how he's transforming you. Like he says to, in, to sit in the fiery trial. It's like the, the bad things that happen in our lives as believers are how God accomplishes the transformation. So question one, what is God's will? He wants to internally transform you. So if that is his will, I know there's you know, dozens of other ways you could answer that question that would be theologically correct, but we're focusing on that one specific nuance. If that is God's will, internal transformation, how does he accomplish internal transformation for a believer? He's going to train you. He's going to give you opportunities for you to trust what you know is true, the teaching of God's word. And as you yield and humble yourself to what you know is true in the moment of trial, the Holy Spirit's going to change who you are. We're, we're going to get more into those moments of humbling and what those look like, how you should pray, how you should practically take some of these steps each day. But that's a big idea for question number two is, question one, what is God's will? Internal transformation. How does he accomplish that? Training. And what is training? We could say trials, difficulty, suffering, you know, the examples we gave are general, James 1, but then Deuteronomy 8 is wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, you know, not having food, not having water, almost dying by getting bit by snakes, all those fun things. And so it's a trial that God produces and he allows those things to accomplish the transformation. So uh, next question, we're going to get we're going to dig more into that idea. This is kind of like that flyover. Before we hit record, I said, this isn't nuts and bolts. This is, hey, look at the car. And so, hey, look at the car. Here's how you get across the bridge. There's the teaching. Way over there's the transformation. How do we get there? It's the training. 
Next time, we're going to answer, ask this question. How do trials cultivate transformation? So like in those moments of trial, what is happening? Like what should I be thinking about? How should I be responding in the actual moments of trial? Or as I, as I realize trials or training is happening. So that's question two. Before we're done, you guys have any comments on it? So when I started doing Pulpit Supply a while back, one of my first sermons that I prepped was on James chapter 1. And it's a classic passage. And I was very thankful that the Lord and his sovereignty allowed me to preach that because, you know, after a couple of years, you've preached that passage so many times, some things start to sink in. So at the end of that verse, it says that you'll be perfect, complete, not lacking anything. And I'm not sure how the dots got connected, but it dawned on me that that looks like transformation, like you're saying. And so we want to be sanctified, but it's interesting that when a trial comes into our life, what do we do? We usually try to avoid it. And so in one sense, I pray to God, sanctify me, sanctify me, sanctify me. And then I hit a trial and I'm like, God, take the trial away, take the trial away, take the trial away. And I'm literally praying against God's work in my life. So I really like this because that's a very helpful thought you're sharing. So I actually want to tag off of that. If you remember, you go back and listen to the previous episode. And we, I asked Tim and Andy, normally when we talk about God's will, what type of discussion does it become? And it becomes a very circumstantial discussion, mm-hmm. externally focused. Mm-hmm. And when trials happen, what normally happens? It's a, it's a circumstantial discussion. Like, mm-hmm. man, this thing is happening. I wish it wasn't. Yep. Like, I don't, we, we don't tend to like uncomfortable things. You see how actually those are the same answer. Like, what is God's will? And when a trial happens, you're like, man, get me out of here. But no, that is, mm-hmm. that is the will. Yeah. He, he is intending that specifically for that purpose of transformation. And it's, that's why we want to address and focus on the internal changing because we naturally want to avoid bad circumstance. Like our, our natural response is this is not a good thing. We have to retrain our thinking to see that it actually is exactly what God wants. It's, it's his primary means of making us like Christ as we're going to see unfold in the next 10 questions. So, Tim, you had a thought, I think. Well, I just was going to note that you know what James is. Proverbs of the New Testament. Yes. Proverbs for dummies. <laughs> oh, now that's a bit harsh. Well, Proverbs is Proverbs for dummies too, right? The nature of how it's written <laughs> is much clearer in James. It's because the Greek language is better than the Hebrew. If any of you... Oh, horrendous. I'm going to get out my... I'm surprised you didn't throw the coffee mug at If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's funny how that'll come up in some later discussions. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the openings of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. So when I asked you the question earlier, and I said, hey, here's our Old Testament guy. What, what passage comes to mind when you think about training in the Old Testament? I actually had two verses, two things written down. I had one, Deuteronomy 8, and then I was like, but he might say, and what I have is wisdom instruction. It's like the, the corpus of wisdom is, it's in this, it's maybe a different nuance than what we're focusing on here, which is like the trial. But 
think about what wisdom literature is. It's when you don't know what to do, you fear the Lord, mm-hmm. and then you do these things. Mm-hmm. It's it's the exact same idea. It's just spoken and kind of appears in a little bit different nuance than how we're presenting it here. But I, I half expected you to, to say that when I gave you the, the opportunity. So I'm glad we're talking about it too. So if you study through Deuteronomy and Proverbs, if you read like a commentary on Deuteronomy, they'll usually have an introductory section explaining how Deuteronomy is connected to Proverbs. There's a great similarity between these two books. And the emphasis that's similar between Deuteronomy and Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. And of course, everybody, well, not everybody, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, Proverbs 1.7, what's the beginning point of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Well, what do you have in James chapter 1? Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Uh, let If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally. But then verse 6, sorry, this was the one. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Okay? Guess what? If you doubt, guess what? You don't have the fear of the Lord. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There can be no doubting. You know this is the right course of action, and you go. Can I dive in? Yes. So I remember many a time, not, and this is going to go back to your circumstantial question, not sure. knowing, oh, sorry, I'm not talking to my mic, not knowing what to do in life. And so I go to James and it says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. So who should I marry? What job should I get? Where should I go to school? I lack wisdom, ask God. Um, let me just read what James's understanding of wisdom is, if this is okay. Chapter 3, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have, now, none of these things are strategic. These are all character issues, what I want to point out. If you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, don't don't boast and be false to the truth. That's not wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first of all, and then notice what he describes. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, full of good fruits, impartial, and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I remember thinking, I always it's like that circumstantial thing. Like you're saying, like I thought, oh, God will tell me what to do next. But in the trial, what is God going to give me liberally? The ability to be open to reason and meek and humble. So, mm, sorry. Well, and so many of those things, like the bitter and the jealousy, you know, those things come up over in Galatians 5. We talk about the fruits of the Spirit and the evidence of the flesh, which we're going to get to that dis- part of discerning in the moment of trial what's going on within you is asking yourself questions like that, like, Am I controlled by the Spirit right now? Which is eventually where we're going to get one of the questions, a couple of the questions are directly asked about, am I walking in the Spirit right now? And that, that's exactly it. Like, what is wisdom? You know, yielding to the Spirit of God, fearing Him. You know, we, when we take fear of the Lord in the Old Testament has a very Father-centered view. What does fearing the Lord now look like? You have a member of the Trinity that indwells you. And so to fear the Lord, 
you could not fear the Lord and also not be yielded to the Spirit. There, you can't have one without the other. So to fear the Lord is, for now, I think it's to be yielded, filled with, or Spirit-controlled, you know, however you want to say it. And so, and then you talk about all these fruits that come through wisdom, through fearing, through walking in the Spirit. And it does pose an interesting theological question. What was the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament? Were they indwelt? Um, that's not for today. Thanks for listening, listener. You have a great <laughs> rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Thinklings podcast. <laughs> so, that, you, can, you can explore that on your own, but I do think there are practical differences. Nowhere in the Old Testament are they commanded not... Don't start. Don't get into there's, it. There's commands in the New Testament to be yielded to the Spirit and to not grieve the Spirit. They didn't have commands like that in the Old Testament. I think it's because of a different stewardship of how the Spirit interacts with believers in the church. So that done right there. Um, but so uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll have question three. I do just want to end with a practical note. I think we said this at the end of question one. We're talking about internal transformation. We kind of gave you know homework in a sense of start thinking about what you love, like what desires and motives and loves really order your life, like why you make decisions, like why do you do what you do? So the, the practical question here is to start thinking about where has God given you opportunities to be trained? Mm. Where are you, you know, Dr. Newman, friend of the program, uh, wrote a book, you know, Dependence in the Wilderness. Yeah, It's like, what wilderness moments do you have? Like, where is God testing you? What trials has he allowed in your life? Mm. There's actually specific categories that we'll think through in subsequent episodes, but just for now, grab a notebook or a journal and as a, a personal practical step each day, try to think through, did God give me any tests today? Did God ever bring something into my life that was meant to challenge what I love or maybe to show me what was in my heart? Like Deuteronomy 8. Wisdom is speaking. And the answer is going to often be, yeah, there were a lot of moments like that. And Are you listening? Yeah, are you gonna, are you gonna look at those things and, like, in those moments, what did you do? Like, did you actually go through the training, or did you just kind of wiggle on through your day and not really think about it? You know, and so trying to focus your mind on that internal work. What are the loves that are ordering my life, and then, are there any moments where God is testing those loves? And I think if you're diligent to start writing those things down, you're gonna see, yeah, He does that every day. So we'll see you next week on the Thinklings podcast with uh, maybe not another discipleship question, but uh, we'll have another one of those in a few weeks and then some other nonsense next week. So. <laughs>